If you follow our show that you know previously we've been addressing how China in the year of 2022 and we just got started in this year has already made a lot of noises and recently this country wrap up the Winter Olympics and also given the condition that international athletes flooded to this country not only they enjoy the competition and also get the chance to see how this country has become more internationalized. Meanwhile, on the sideline, countries in Latin America also cheering for this country, not only for the economic growth, but also in the long term, they're hoping for more economic partnership. Recently, if you follow the news that you might notice the country of Argentina, one of the critical countries in Latin American region, joined China under this Belt and Road Initiative. That really begs the question, why Argentina? And what is this bilateral ties between these two countries? So that's why it's so important for me to invite our distinguished scholar to join the show to tell us more. Now, joining this episode is Professor Mark Lantin, and he teaches in political science, including international relations, comparative politics, including China, Oceania, and polar regions. And of course, he's also an expert on security studies and comparative political economy. Professor Mark, and welcome to The Missing Piece. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Professor Mark, let's get to the question right away. You know, as I mentioned before, for countries to join the Belt and Road Initiative, it's not something new in the year of 2022. However, very seldom we did not or we have not heard a lot of countries from Latin American region to join this project. Now, Argentina during this Winter Olympic season, not only met with the Chinese leader, but also agreed to join this big project, which could be a, one of the significant or major economic step for both countries. So that will bring us to the first question, Professor Mark. Why do you think Argentina decided to take such a, a decision? And also, how does that benefit both countries in the long run? Thank you. Uh, to give a little bit of short background, yes, the Belt and Road is getting very close to its 10th anniversary. And when it was first conceived by the Xi Jinping government, uh, a majority of the members and governments signing on were from Eurasia, from Southeast Asia, from Africa. There was not a lot of initial concern about extending it to Latin America, but that has changed quite a bit. And Argentina is only the most recent Latin American government to sign on to the BRI. Others uh, very recently being Venezuela, Peru, Chile. And this is a very interesting development because we're now seeing Latin America begin to turn more towards China mm. as an important trading partner, as a source of funds, as a source of various uh, types of trade cooperation. And this was a very important consideration for Argentina. This is a country which has struggled with economic stability for a very long time. It has had to deal with multiple defaults on its debt. It has had a very difficult relationship with the United States. And it has tried to expand its economic presence, not only in Latin America, but internationally. Mm. So the current government of Alberto Fernandez has said very specifically that he sees China as a very important component in growing the Argentinian economy, as well as getting necessary capital mm. for all kinds of different infrastructure projects. 
Well, Professor Mark, again, um, I appreciate that what you just shared with us. But in reality, you know, everyone who reads the news and understand the relationship between Western culture and also this uh, Latin American culture during this past few years and seemed to be closer, you know, given the condition that China was considered to be one of the major competitors with the Western side. But however, what triggered that Latin American countries, such as, as you mentioned, Peru, Colombia, and Argentina, and Uruguay, those countries decided to shift their attention from Western or maybe European side to China. And don't you think that's such a, a I don't want to say the word dangerous, but that but they are playing a very uncertain bet because we don't know if China can actually bring this project to the full measure, despite the fact that you mentioned it's coming to this 10-year anniversary. What is your take on that? Yeah, it's a very important question. And certainly, uh, United States policymakers uh, expressed a great deal of dismay at Argentina's decision, also expressing uh, dismay at the overall uh, diplomatic and economic moves of many Latin American and Caribbean countries towards China. Now, to ask why this is taking place, first of all, you would need to look at uh, China's overall economic strength and the fact that through the Belt and Road, through all kinds of different cross-regional initiatives, China has expanded its interests from the Asia-Pacific to many other parts of the world, including in Latin America. And many countries in the region see China as a very important, not necessarily re uh, replacement for the United States, but certainly as an alternative pole, as an alternative market. China, no matter which way you look at it, is a very large potential and current market for a lot of Latin American goods. And more to the point, China is seen as a very important uh, potential economic contributor to a lot of different economic and infrastructure projects, which Argentina and many of its neighbors are seeking out. Now, the United States, looking at its uh, viewpoint on this, I would say this is also very much a product of a great deal of American policy neglect towards Latin America. Mm. This was especially the case under the Trump administration, where you had a considerable amount of uh, very poor relations between, uh, between the Trump government and many parts of Central and South America. And that, if anything, kind of furthered the initiative to develop alternative partners. And China was there and very much willing to fill what was being perceived as a policy void. Mm. Well, Professor Mark, again, one thing that we have to understand for the Belt and Road Initiative, one word that comes to our mind is the word reciprocity. So in other words, that when a country is willing to join this project and in return, they're hoping uh, to receive this not only economic benefits, but also in the long term, that could be a political partnership with China. But meanwhile, that we have to remind our viewers that China, it's also a strategic partner. You know, it's a strategic um, ally for another of a lot of countries. But you just mentioned that countries such as Argentina, it's in total mess. It's, it's in a crisis politically and uh, economically speaking. This question might sound very silly, but what would China get in return? We know that this is not really a fair deal in the long run. So why do you think that China agreed a country such as Argentina to join the project? What if one day such country cannot uh, return or cannot uh, give the favor back to China? And what would happen to this country? Okay, very good question. Um, 
to start with my answer, first of all, it is very unclear, and this is also the case even for Chinese policymakers, what the end result of the Belt and Road is going to be. Like, it's very difficult to look at the BRI as a single block or a single project. Mm. The best metaphor I often uh, present to my students is that it's almost a series of gears. Some are going very fast, some are going very slow, some have stopped and may or may not start up again. And assuming that the Belt and Road reaches completion, let's say 20, 30 years from now, it is very, very difficult to predict which components will actually be operational. But on the other hand, what China wants to do is to expand the Belt and Road's um, diplomacy, economic facets to as many parts of the world as possible. Now, as you correctly point out, China has also based a lot of Belt and Road partnerships on the concept of reciprocity, or a very common term that is always brought up whenever these types of meetings take place is win-win cooperation. Mm. So both sides walk away happy. And that has been a cornerstone of a lot of Chinese trade policy, even before the Belt and Road was actually coming together. Mm. Now, how does that work in the case of Argentina? Well, going back to U.S. policy, when the trade war between the Trump government and um, China began in 2018, there was a lot of concern about what this was going to do uh, for, for example, the cost of food, raw materials, energy, mm. like which other countries would be caught in the crossfire. So China was very interested in looking for alternative sources of raw materials. And Argentina especially was very um, strongly placed to provide a great deal of foodstuffs, uh, beef, soybeans, various other agricultural products That's as right. an alternative to the U.S. So that was being looked at very carefully. As well, Argentina is a very large economy in Latin America. It is one of the cornerstones of the regional economic system. Mm. And it also provided Beijing with a very um, good opportunity to demonstrate to the rest of Latin America that we are very serious about this kind of win-win cooperation, about making sure that all sides walk away happy. And we are also very much interested in providing alternative to the United States, especially since the trade war was threatening to cause a lot of collateral damage to uh, Central and South America as well. Well, Professor Mark, you know, um, as you mentioned many times that during the Trump administration, this trade war was such a hot topic. Now, fast forward today, we're no longer under this administration and the president has changed under Joe Biden. But somehow this foreign policy side, and I'm sure that you know much better than I do, is in terms of dealing with China. On one side, we have not seen any changes significantly. There might be some, but it's not a major big step. It's not a turning point compared with the previous administration. But on the other hand, we could say that U.S. on this right now is so afraid that more allies or more potential partners or existing partners are leaving this aisle and going over to someone else. But they have no strategy how to protect or how to guarantee this economic package or this economic uh, a trust in the long run. So why do you think the U.S. today, at this moment, in terms of dealing with China and also guarantee or protecting uh, the allies or partners, it's really a lot of balls in the air to juggle, but none of that making sense to us, don't you think? Yeah, it's been a problem, I would say, not only for the current Biden administration, but certainly for the Trump and the Barack Obama governments. The fact that we have seen a policy shift in terms of both security and economics 
to various regions, very often being reactive, reacting to a change in a strategic situation. With Barack Obama, there was the pivot to Asia, rebalancing to Asia, which attempted to kind of draw a line under the conflicts in uh, Central Asia and the Middle East. You have the Trump government that pursued a very strong isolationist foreign policy to the detriment of many areas of regional policy. And the situation with Joe Biden right now, very recently, for example, uh, a new Indo-Pacific strategy, which mm. was published by the White House. So very ambitious and would seem to demonstrate that the Asia Pacific was going to be a major focus. But with the situation with Ukraine now, the situation has turned again to another part of the world. So the concern is that you look at policymakers in Latin America and saying, well, we still appear to be not on the policy radar in Washington right now. So it is up to us. Uh, should we not look for alternative partners, especially since China is in a very good position to provide uh, not only expanded trade, but underwriting for various types of infrastructure. And this was especially key for Argentina, which has been looking for all kinds of different project funding. Uh, and sees China as a great way of getting those started. Do you think that the countries in Latin American region they have already lost hope in the United States? Is it is it too too early to make this prediction, or is it too late for the U.S. to realize that they have already lost those strategic or economic partners, and so that those countries they cannot wait, or those countries could not afford? To wait for another peer, a period, or for another couple months, you know. So again, there's no uh, show and tell to say when U.S. is going to realize that partners in Latin American countries are also important. So that's why those countries decided to turn their a、uh, shift away from the U.S. but to China. Very good point. I would say that first of all, I don't think it's too late for a policy course correction. However, it is going to be very difficult under current circumstances. Understandably, a lot of mindshare in U.S. policy is now shifting towards Europe, and I don't see that changing in the near term. That said, though, a lot of lost opportunities、uh, could be seen in engaging Latin America more effectively. The problem is, and I think the understanding is only starting to really kick in, is that a lot of these issues are very much interconnected. That、mm. it's all very well to focus on the Asia Pacific, to focus on、uh, to focus on Russia, but a lot of what China is doing in terms of expanding its policy is having a more direct cross-regional effect. And I could also point to Oceania, Africa, Middle East, and even Europe. We're starting to see China make very significant policy inroads through the Belt and Road, and also through various free trade agreements. So the understanding that this is has to be looked at as many many different types of interconnections is very key here, and the other point that I would make is that for a very long time, like the Belt and Road has been around for almost ten years now,、mm. and many have been waiting for the United States to come up with its response. Like, what is it going to do to say we have a better option?、Mm. We have one which better fits your economic interests. Nothing under Donald Trump. Under Joe Biden, we have the first vestiges of what's been called the Build Back Better World Plan, but we're still waiting to see details, and we're still waiting to see tangibles. And as you point out, many governments in Latin America and elsewhere simply cannot wait that long, especially since we're heading into a very difficult period of economic uncertainty,、mm. supply chain issues, inflation, and very possibly an energy crisis. So, time is getting short, no matter which way you look. Professor Mark, I want to talk about the topic regarding technology. 
And we know that the Belt and Road Initiative, it's not just about the resources on land. It's not just about the resources in the water. But meanwhile, under this project, that technological advancement, it's so, so crucial, not only to China, but also to the world. But let's be fair. To some extent, in terms of this technological advancement, for example, uh, semiconductors and, you know, the chips development, to be fair, these issues, Chinese, uh, China today is not actually on the lead. As a matter of fact, it seems rather competitive with a lot more countries. Now, with that said, how do you think that China, under this Belt and Road Initiative, is going to compete technologically with other competitors? Or how do you think that China in this year ahead is going to gear up not only for uh, the land or uh, for the resources in land or water, but also for this technological war or technological com competition is going to get ahead of the game instead of falling behind? Okay, very good questions. And this goes back to a lot of worries from the United States as well as here in Europe about the fact that China is starting to make very significant leaps in cutting-edge technology. And I'm talking specifically about artificial intelligence, mm. about blockchain, about quantum computing. And many have used the term technological cold war, which could be a little bit of an overstatement, but it really factors into the concern that we're seeing a decoupling of many aspects of the Chinese and Western economies, that we're going to be seeing two kind of different pathways towards the new economy, one which is much more digital, financial technology, blockchain, and all of that. Now, China does have a lot of ground to recover. It is still very weak in many areas. It still has not had the same amount of time that other countries have had to build these new technological areas. But it is growing at a very rapid clip. And one big issue right now has to do with availability, as you say, of microchips, which is something which China is still very much behind the West in and is the factor when we talk about Taiwan. Mm. We also are starting to talk very significantly, including up here in Norway, about strategic materials, which can be used for computers, green technology, uh, communications and so forth, that that competition will also spill over into various parts of the world. Just to go back to Argentina for a moment, Argentina is also a major uh, source of lithium, which mm. is seen as, well, it is essential to batteries for electric vehicles. So one concern that the U.S. has raised is that we'll get that give China an edge in that particular area of technology. It goes back to what I said before. Everything is interconnected here. Mm. Professor Mark, we know that this year for China, not only that, you know, it's crucial that China just wrap up this Winter Olympics. But also, we know that this year, 2022, has another significant milestone, so which remembers everyone and reminds everyone that this is the 50th anniversary since Richard Nixon came to China in the year of 1972. So in other words, it's been a long journey for those two countries, starting with the open-door policy until where we are right now. Again... This question might sound really silly. Why do you think it's still meaningful or purposeful for us to remember this milestone, given this condition that China and U.S., the relationship, it's not nearly as close as what we saw 50 years ago? 
Uh, not a silly question at all. And it is something which is being asked in many different quarters, not only in China studies, but also many governments are starting to reconsider what happened 50 years ago and what the true results were. Mm. The purpose behind the opening was for American policymakers at the time, they saw an opportunity. There was a long period of time starting from the early 1960s where you saw the first vestiges of the Sino-Soviet split. And many in the West, many in the United States were not completely sure what to make of it. Like, is this just a policy issue? Is this something which is going to be very temporary? But once it became known by the 70s that, no, this is not going to be a relationship that was going to rebuild itself, the U.S. saw this as an excellent opportunity to redistribute power mm. on an international level, um, improving its situation in the Cold War. Now, this was also seen as necessary later on when we got to see some studies of what happened as a way of bringing China out of what was then its post-cultural revolution isolation. Right. To allow for China to join the international community and then later on to join the international uh, economic system. And there was a great deal of optimism for a very long time that China would eventually become a more, call it socialized, call it integrated part of many aspects of international life. Now, you go fast forward to a few years ago and you have some American officials under the Trump government saying this was the wrong path to take, mm. that we made a lot of assumptions that did not turn out to be true. This is a little bit complicated, though, for a few reasons. First of all, we really have to understand what the origins are of mm. the current troubles between the United States and China. And we should also point out that it wasn't just the United States that was involved in this rapprochement with Beijing. Many countries including in Europe, we could point to Japan, we could point to many other parts of the world, we're also trying to get involved That's right. in opening relations with China and taking advantage of the possibility of China's opening. So to say, well, the United States made a mistake or the United States could have, should have done this, that really does not give you the full picture. So where things stand now, yes, it is an extremely um, difficult situation to gauge. And now with the current circumstances with Russia and Ukraine, Many are looking to China now and saying, well, how is Beijing going to respond That's right. from a policy point of view and from a strategic point of view? So even though China is not directly involved in what is happening in Ukraine, it is still being seen as a very important component about what happens next. Well, I'm very glad, Professor Mark, that you mentioned what's going on in the country of Ukraine. And again, just... 24 hours ago, and the country of Russia decided unexpectedly to invade the country of Ukraine. And given the condition that we know China was not directly involved in this conflict, but the international community, especially the United States, was or still is expecting China to show some type of confirmative attitude towards Russia or maybe a, a compassionate message to Ukraine. But just this morning, that based on the report, that the China has a very firm stand, and given this uh, domestic or international policy for decades, China made it crystal clear that we have never meddled any domestic or international affairs because we believe that this country or any country is fully capable of taking care of the crisis internally and externally. Now, Professor Mark, do you think this is such a helpful attitude or it can be a satisfying answer to the West? And why do you think that, again, maybe uh, you answered that question already, but why do you think that Russia, Ukraine, other countries are looking at China, even though China can say, hey, listen, I'm not interested. Don't pull me in because I have a lot of things going on and I want to move on with my projects. So these things, 
it's going to go away or it's going to be taken care of by themselves. Yes, like for a very long time, especially as China was continuing its reform process. So we go from the 1990s to today. There was always still a bit of reluctance, and we can trace this all the way back to Deng Xiaoping's adage, uh, hide your light, don't get involved, and try not to uh, demonstrate your strength. Only under Xi Jinping very recently has China slowly started to move away from that. But there's still vestiges of, you can call it stage fright, in getting involved in issues directly outside of the Asia Pacific. Now, you look at some of the comments from the Chinese foreign ministry over the past 24 hours. Uh, some of the press briefings have been you could almost look at policymakers almost turning themselves into pretzels, trying to, on one hand, balance the fact that China is calling upon all sides to exercise restraint. That's right. That China is a strong believer in the sanctity of state sovereignty. But on the other hand, we understand that Russia has very specific historical issues and that the United States have made a critical error by expanding NATO and engaging in uh, regional policy as it has. So this is very much a question of trying to have your cake and eat it too. And that is going to be very difficult for China to maintain if we do see a protracted conflict. Because as you correctly point out, the conventional wisdom is that China will stand with Russia on this because they have a very close strategic and economic relationship. But at the same time, China's relations with Ukraine are certainly not negligible. Um, they were seen at about uh, 19 billion American last year. So that's a very significant amount. Ukraine is a major provider, again, of foodstuffs and agricultural goods to China. And even discounting that, China also cannot afford to alienate Europe. Mm. China has been pursuing a very robust diplomatic policy towards Europe. It's run into some difficulties here and there, for example, with Sweden and Lithuania. So China very much wants to, first of all, not get directly involved in this conflict, especially as we see the run-up in November of a very important party congress. And it certainly does not want to be seen as taking a side, because then we would have a problem with China's long-standing assertion about sovereignty and the need to recognize it. And of course, that when we talk about China and when we talk about Russia, and one of the another major economic framework is what we call the BRICS. You know, China was involved and a uh, country of South Africa was involved, and Russia was involved, and of course, the, the country of Brazil also is part of the deal. So, Professor Mark, from your perspective, again, just piggyback what you just said before, in order for China to continue to be in this mutual gear or in this uh, uh, developing uh, stage, it's better for China not to meddle with any other international affairs and so that the China can never be understood by the international community to say, hey, this time China is taking the side. But China has never taken the side because China has its own policy, has its own strategy to deal with the enemies and not to deal with allies. So that's number one. Number two is, how do you think that Russians' invasion to Ukraine could impact its role in BRICS at this moment. Because again, you know, a lot of countries, Professor Mark, you just mentioned, have already announced the sanctions and also uh, the uh, supportive for Ukrainian government uh, 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 to be against this Russian military uh, invasion. How do you think that really matters to the BRICS framework? And also, how do you think that China should re-engage with Russia or should re-understand or see the image of Russia after this invasion? Okay, very good questions. To start off with, looking at China's ongoing reluctance to play a kind of unilateral role in a lot of international issues outside of the Asia-Pacific, 
This has been an area which China has been wrestling with a lot, even under Xi Jinping, uh, who has obviously promised to make China more of an international uh, player, Mm. more of a traditional great power. You still have a little bit of nervousness about being out on stage alone and saying, you should do this, and this part of the world should do this. We see this in the United Nations. Whenever a very controversial, at least for China, issue comes up to the UNSC, very often the result is a double veto that China will wait for Russia to issue the veto and then China will jump in afterwards. Right. It does still does not have a great deal of enthusiasm for coming uh, coming to a particular policy conclusion alone, especially uh, having the risk of being labeled a spoiler. The second point is that for a very long time, China was always trying to draw a distinction between politics and economics. Mm. That China would approach a particular region, including Latin America, and say that we are interested in economic cooperation. We have no interest in talking to you about governance. That is your purview. We are interested in sovereignty. We simply want to develop stronger economic ties Mm. based on mutual interest. But again, this is becoming more difficult as China becomes a great power, because when you are a great power, you can't simply jump off the stage when something becomes difficult. You have to have the rights and the responsibilities. And this is what China is still in many ways trying to wrestle with. And I think that what is happening with Ukraine now is going to be a very difficult lesson for Beijing, that you can't really uh, walk the line on something this critical, something which is going to affect European security for a very long time, relations with the West for a very long time. So China cannot afford to continue its own policy of simply staying out of the fray. Mm. Now, in regards to the BRICS, China is very interested in engaging with all kinds of different emerging economies of various sizes, including large ones such as India, Brazil, Russia. China is also very interested in helping to develop large developing uh, economies in Africa, Nigeria, South Africa. That said, though, we are going to be seeing a great deal of pressure on many of these emerging economies because of the post-COVID economic situation, because of concerns about uh, inflation and availability of resources, and the fact that the United States is also trying to come forward and slowly but surely trying to offer an alternative for many of these economies to say, okay, uh, we should be your primary partner, we should be your preferred partner. If The situation with Ukraine, I think, was also going to be a good example of this. China would prefer to maintain very good economic relations with Russia, obviously, but also with Ukraine. And that is simply not going to be possible if China continues to try to uh, act uh, kind of aloof Mm. from what is happening with the crisis. So a lot of these policy uh, preferences that Beijing has are starting to bump into each other and a lot more frequently. Professor Mark, I got two more questions before letting you go. But now, when we talk about China this year, again, uh, based on what happened between Russia and Ukraine, international community experts are saying that this could be a bad sign for another region of the country, which is Taiwan. You know, right now, the relationship between China and Taiwan seems very sensitive. And given the condition that, you know, uh, U.S. has been actively engaged with declare the sovereignty of Taiwan and try to use the words or, you know, use the uh, military power to send the warnings to Chinese government. People could say what is happening in Ukraine right now could be an indicator that what would happen to Taiwan if Taiwan refuses to follow or obey this uh, historical documents under China. 
So, Professor Mark, I want to uh, a sh a listen or uh, take advice from your perspective. Is it relevant for us to talk about Taiwan at this moment? It is quite relevant. And certainly as far as the Taiwanese government is concerned, it is also quite relevant. They are watching the situation in Ukraine very closely, and that is completely understandable. For the single reason that both of these issues have to do with contested sovereignty, as well as the assertion made by Russia and to a degree made by China that we have the right and the sole right to say this particular area is sovereign or not. Mm. Uh, Vladimir Putin's very rambling and bombastic speech a few days ago just before the invasion made it very clear that he did not see Ukraine as a viable independent state. He saw it as an artificial construct. You have similar assertions being made from the Chinese government towards Taiwan, that it has no uh, basis on being independent, autonomous, and certainly cannot pursue any sort of independence. The other uh, area of um, sameness between the two is that China is also starting to express concern that the more time goes by, the more difficult it will be to engage in some kind of unification because mm. you have younger generations in Taiwan. They have no particular memory or any particular affinity for the PRC. You have a very popular uh, president who had done very good things, um, keeping uh, Taiwan out of the worst of the pandemic, engaging in very strong uh, health diplomacy in much of the world, getting a great deal of international attention. And this obviously did not go down well with the Chinese government. Hmm. That said, I do not see that any kind of serious military action is uh, planned in the near future by China towards Taiwan. For the simple reason that we're heading into a very pivotal period in China's government right now. The party congress, which is going to be taking place in the autumn, is going to be very difficult because now we see for the first time in a long time a Chinese leader seeking to extend his leadership beyond the usual 10-year limit. Mm. Now, this has already been written into the Chinese constitution, so right. on paper this is already done and dusted, but it is would be very difficult to say that uh, she still has to make the case that I need to extend my leadership. And considering the uh, serious amount of difficulty that the Chinese economy, like everyone else, has had over the past two years, there is going to be a great deal of emphasis about keeping everything calm, keeping everything measured and stage managed to make sure that the party congress goes off okay and there are no unpleasant surprises. So any kind of unknown factors, including increasing the pressure on Taiwan, uh, I'd say would not be likely to happen. Mm. Now, we are seeing, and we've just seen it over the past few days, some sorties very close to uh, Taiwanese airspace. We are likely going to see continuing uh, pressure of various types. But I would say that it's in China's interest now, and we're already seeing signs of this just over the past 24 hours or so, that China simply wants to step back. It wants to basically give its own opinion mm. on what is happening in Ukraine, but does not want to contribute or does not want to affect uh, global security beyond what is already being taken place. Professor Mark, my last question, let's go back to China. Now, this year, again, in the year 2022, most people believe that this year is so critical for the current Chinese leader. Because if I could use one word, or if we could use one word, the goal for the Chinese leader is the word legacy. So in other words, you know, it's been decades that since we saw the Belt and Road project, and it's been decades that we've seen China how economically, socially, and politi politically uh, transform itself and also to the world. 
how significant it is for the Chinese leader at this moment to pay attention to the word legacy in order to create a wider or even louder noises for the years ahead? And that's question number one. And the next one is, what does that mean from your perspective to create a legacy, not just for the people in China alone, but also for the people and the audience outside this country? Okay, excellent questions. To answer the first, I would say yes. Xi Jinping is very concerned about his legacy, and I think that would probably be the major reason why he has taken the decision to extend his tenure. You can point to many ambitious projects, the Belt and Road being at the forefront, that he would like to have personal supervision of for uh, the near future. Mm. Like one of his nicknames in Beijing is Minister of Everything. Like mm. he is considerably more prone to micromanagement than his two predecessors. And more to the point, he is very concerned about how he is going to be remembered after he steps down, much more so than Hu Jintao or Jiang Zemin before him. Both of these gentlemen were primarily technocrats, whereas Xi Jinping really wants to be a transformative actor, to be seen as a transformative actor. So he has been very um, active in putting forward various policy papers, including a kind of redefinition of the role of the party within China, a redefinition of what democracy is, and certainly much less restrained in pointing to the West, pointing to the United States and mm. saying we have potential better models. How this is playing itself out? Well, a lot of this is obviously being um, played primarily to uh, audiences in China. Uh, the Olympics are seen in China as a great success, whereas they have a somewhat more mixed legacy outside of the country. Mm. China is also very interested in making use of international media, all kinds of different uh, media forms, to demonstrate that China is here, China wants to be a partner, and China can make very significant contributions to the global community. This has led to some backlash. We've seen uh, criticisms, for example, of Confucius Institutes. We've seen uh, some concerns about uh, Chinese disinformation. And there's also a concern that we have seen a great deal of so-called wolf warrior diplomacy, mm. whereby China pushes back against certain governments that are seen as insulting the Chinese nation. Uh, Canada, Australia, Sweden, and now Lithuania have been uh, directly affected by that. So it's not only about legacy, it's also about the interest in pursuing a narrative, to develop mm. a narrative of what China represents in the Asia-Pacific region, vis-a-vis -vis the United States, and globally. Professor Mark, I do have one more question. I'm sorry, because it's so engaging that listening to your sharing and analysis, just quick question, since you mentioned other countries in the uh, Indo-Pacific, and we know that this year... There are so many countries, specifically in Asia, are gearing up for elections. Country of South Korea, country of India, and the other countries. Now, how significant do you think it is for these candidates in these countries play the card of China? So in other words, how important it is for each candidate to express their desires or views in terms of dealing with China? Do you think that those kind of talking points can actually boost it, their popularity, domestically? I think that many of these elections, and I would definitely point to South Korea as a good example, handling China is going to be very key here. Because we're entering into a period, we have been in a period of economic uncertainty for some time, and we're not seeing an endpoint anywhere soon. Mm. It would be extremely difficult for any candidate to say, well, we want to move away from China. We don't want to engage China economically to the degree that we are now. That would be extremely difficult. On the other hand, though, there is 
obviously a lot of concern about what China's rise in the Asia-Pacific means, that we have a lot of concern that with, for example, Australia, the United States, Great Britain getting together for closer uh, strategic cooperation. That's right. Many of the countries you name do not want to be put in the very, very complicated situation of having to choose sides, to have to basically say, okay, I'm going to align with this great power over the other. So handling China is going to have to be done very carefully. Now, you also mentioned India. On one hand, there has been a lot of enthusiasm for a long time about growing the economic relationship between uh, India and China, the whole kind of BRICS partnership and so forth. But strategically, there have been a lot of problems, especially dealing with security in the Himalayan region, as mm. well as concerns over whether uh, the Indian Ocean right. is going to become a contested space. So we go back to the problem of how do we balance the politics and the economics? And I think that many of these countries that are facing elections in the near future are going to have to handle that extremely carefully. Hmm. Well, Professor Mark Lenton teaches in political science, including international relations, comparative politics, and of course, security studies and comparative political economy. Professor Mark, thank you so much for being on my show. And it's been a pleasure of speaking with you. And we'd love to to have you back on our show again for the future topics regarding China and the international community. Thank you, Professor Mark.